title of my sermon tonight is Endgame. So I'm going to be talking about the end times. If we're going to go into the end times, why not make it as dramatic as possible, right? This is going to have zero references to the Avengers, other than this one right up front. This is your Tony, sorry, not Tony Starks. This is your Doctor Strange moment where he looks at the Iron Man and he says, this is the ending, Tony. Like, I believe that we are an end times generation, which I'm going to get into here in a moment. And we want to look at and revisit what Jesus had to say about the end time generation. Allow it to shape our game plan. Amen? Amen. Matthew 4, 17. Actually, let me say this real quick. I was talking to one of my mentors, a pastor who's had a tremendous amount of influence on my life the other day. And I was sharing with her the thoughts that I was going to be sharing here tonight. And I was like, you know, I was sharing with one of our RDS students, Robert, what the theme of my message was. And then somehow it's going to come back to the end times. He goes, well, that happens every time. We joke about that. Every time you get to preach, somehow you talk about the end times. And this pastor I was talking to, she has kind of the same bet. She has a former annoying on her life. And she said to me, I heard this story once, that when they were trying to teach Helen Keller how to communicate, they would take block letters, and they would place them in her hand, and they would flip them and rotate them, and keep moving them around. And someone saw this happening one day and said, she's not getting it. She's not getting it. Just stop. But they kept repositioning those block letters until eventually it clicked. That's an A. That's a B. And all of a sudden, she formed the ability to communicate. I'm not calling anybody here blind or deaf. But my hope is that as you hear something I have preached many times, maybe something you're even very familiar with, but it hasn't clicked yet why this end times message is so pertinent to your daily life, that something all of a sudden, the letter would be turned in such a way to that you go, and something deep inside of you would be provoked to pursue God's end time, eternal plans and purposes. This is the end game. We're in the last hour. What Jesus said about this generation, it matters. May the letter be flipped in such a way that it clicks. Amen? Amen. Matthew 4, 17. Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist. The heavens were red. An audible voice from heaven says, This is my son, my dearly beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. Remains on Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. He goes into the wilderness, is tempted there for 40 days while he fasts and learns how to say no, to exercise that restraint. He goes in full of the Holy Spirit. He comes out in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he makes this declaration in Matthew 4, 17. Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The theme for tonight is stewarding our hour of history as an end time generation. In order to do this, we need to do two things. We need to know where we're at in God's story, His meta-narrative. You've probably heard me say that before. And we need to understand the nature of the kingdom of heaven. Has anyone ever just, you know, show of hands, looked at a period of history, biblical history, like something you've read about in the Bible, where there was dramatic intervention on God's part, like the splitting of the Red Sea and just... Thought to yourself, I wish I could have been there. Like, it would be so much easier to jump on board with what God was doing in a generation if he was moving in an observable and dramatic way, right? To think, man, if I was there, you know, when Elijah was calling down a fire and saying, choose today which side you're on, it'd be so much easier to just go wholehearted all in to be on board with this God thing. If I was there when John the Baptist was a voice shouting in the wilderness... Oh, man, I'd have been the first in line to get baptized, right? If I was there when the lepers were getting cleansed, it would be so easy to recognize that I'm in the middle of God's story. I want to bring you into the moment in the story that you currently find yourself. In Matthew 24, 14, the disciples come to Jesus privately, 
And they asked him a very significant question. They said, what will signal your second coming? What will signal your return and the end of the world? That's a pretty big question. And at the end of his statement, he says this, and the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it and then the end will come. Did you know that it's believed within the next 10 years, for the first time since Jesus spoke those words, the Bible will have been translated into every known language? Hello. I don't believe that's the full completion of the Great Commission, but some sense of the Great Commission, for the first time since Jesus spoke that in Matthew 24, 14, will be completed in your generation. More people are being saved right now all across the globe than at any previous point in history. Right now, if you go to other countries, even where there's an underground church, more people are being added to the kingdom every single day, right now, than at any other time in the history of the world. But we also see widespread and deep darkness everywhere we look. It's exactly what the end time narrative says is going to happen. There's going to be deep and widespread darkness, but also the greatest revival mankind has ever seen. We are living in significant Bible times. Remember when I asked, wouldn't it be so easy if you saw the Red Sea split? Wouldn't it be so easy if you saw Elijah on the mountaintop? If you saw Jeremiah weeping in the street? Wouldn't it be so easy if you heard the voice of John the Baptist saying, Repent! Behold the Lamb of God! But can't we step into the significant Bible times we're living in right now? And say that since Genesis 1, God's story has never been stagnant and it doesn't move forward passively. In Matthew 11, Jesus himself speaking, he said, Since the time of John the Baptist, the kingdom has been violently advancing and the violent take it by force. This is not talking about crusades. This is talking about people saying, I want to see the fulfillment of God's eternal plans and purposes. I can't strive to bring it about, but I can join God with what he's already doing in the earth and see it completed. Or at least we're going to move forward or get closer to that. God will accomplish his eternal plans and purposes, whether this generation chooses to participate or not. But it's up to you to decide whether you want to sit on the sidelines or you want to be a part of it. So once we realize the significance of the times that we're living in, we need to understand the nature of the kingdom of heaven as both now and not yet. Everybody say now Now. and not yet. yet. When Jesus began preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was saying that it's near, it's come near to you, but it has not come in its completion. That's why we should daily be praying the disciples pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Because it's both now and not yet. Jesus began to preach about the beginning of the end. Let me give you an example of this. In Romans 29 through 30, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might become the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. And those he chose, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Let me show you how that's both now and not yet. If you're in Christ Jesus, you have been justified. Which means at the moment of salvation, you were set right with God. But you are presently in the process of being conformed into the image of Christ. It's now, but it's not yet. The last part is awesome. We will one day, in the twinkling of an eye, when we see him perfectly as he is, and he shows up in the clouds of glory, be glorified with him. When we strip this earthly tent and put on our heavenly bodies for all time. 
It's now I've been justified. It's not yet I'm being sanctified, made to look more like Jesus every day. But one day it's going to be completed when the kingdom arrives in its fullness and he shows up in the clouds of glory. The kingdom is now, but it's not yet. So we live in the gap. We live in the tension. We're citizens and ambassadors of an unseen kingdom, but we live in a fallen world. How do we live in this tension? How do we live in the space between now, but not yet? We're going to look at one story tonight and two different parables to answer this question. But first, I just want to give you guys a quick little study tip about how to read parables in their original context, okay? So we're outside of the original context they were delivered in. So when we want to understand a parable the way it's supposed to be understood, we need to know that a parable was meant to drive a response in the same way that rightly understanding or getting a joke the first time is a punchline. And parables had a punchline, except for it wasn't to make you laugh, it was to drive a response. Because we don't live in the same culture that they live in, sometimes we miss the obvious points of reference that would have driven that response. Kind of like if you miss the points of reference in a joke, by the time the punchline comes, you don't get the setup. So parables are not meant to be dissected the way that other chunks of scripture are. They're meant to drive a response. And we want to make sure that we end up on the right side of the response. So tonight when I share the parables, I'm not going to try to like dissect them or show them something you've never seen. I'm going to try to point out the obvious. And then when we get ready to wrap this thing up, I'm going to call you to respond. Because that's what Jesus was doing when he gave people parables. He was making something plain to them. He was setting something up, and it was either going to hit them, and usually you can only end up on one or two sides of the parable. You either end up on the right side, where you realize, oh, Jesus is saying that, that I'm responding the way he wants me to right now. Or when you don't, it's a call to repentance. It's align yourself with what God wants from your life. The first one is a story. This is not a parable. Luke chapter 10, starting verse 57. So again, we're saying, how do we respond to the now but not yet reality of being an end times generation? Luke chapter 10, starting verse 57. As they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. And he said to another person, come and follow me. And the man agreed. But he said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. Another said, yes, Lord, I will follow you. But first, let me say goodbye to my family. And Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. What is the thrust of this story is that our response to the call to follow Jesus should be immediate and complete. The Bible promises us a lot of things, but it does not promise us tomorrow. It means that when you are presented with an opportunity to respond to Jesus, it should be immediate on the spot, and it should be complete. That we don't have one foot in the world, our safety net, our plan B, we don't have one foot in the kingdom. But to the best of our ability, with our present response, we jump two feet into the kingdom. It's about urgency and surrender. In our decision to follow Jesus, there can be no but first or partial commitment. I wonder in any area of your life where God is calling you to total obedience, what's on your list of but first? That someday I will get to the thing that God is calling me to. Why not today? Why not tonight? Why not put a stake in the ground tonight? 
Not because Skylar told you to, but because you hear Jesus calling your name and the Holy Spirit quickening your heart, that you don't care if anyone goes with you, that you make a decision tonight. Whatever God calls me to, it's yes and amen. Jesus says repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Greek word for repent is metaneo. It means to change one's mind. It means that repentance is a decision, not an emotion. It is not working out some type of remorseful, worldly sorrow response, but it is a decision to change your mind and begin walking in the opposite direction towards God and towards His purposes. I'm going to share with you a quick story of what this looks like in real time. In the mid-19th century, there was a man and his wife, next song, I'm not sure if I'm saying his name correctly, who converted to Christianity due to the work of local missionaries in the area. When his village chief found out that he had converted to Christianity, he threatened to kill two of his children. Next song's response, I have decided to follow Jesus. In response, both of his children were killed. The threats continued. They said, we'll kill your wife. And he continued by saying, though no one will join me, still I will follow. His wife was killed. And then he was executed while seeing the world behind him, the cross before him. An Indian missionary who knew this story later took these words of the martyr and composed them into a famous hymn that you're probably familiar with. It was often heard at Billy Graham Crusades. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. A word to this generation. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back. No turning back. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. He's not caught in the crossfire. He knows where he's going. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. We're going to have an opportunity to sing that song at the end of the night. I want you to sing with a conviction. That one man laid his life down saying those words. We need to be a generation that though we're not facing that type of harsh persecution, there needs to be that same level of resolve in our heart. There's a recent documentary put out by the Voice of the Martyrs called Sheep Among Wolves, and it's about the underground church in Iran. I haven't seen it myself, but someone was telling me about it the other day. And there's a husband and wife that were able to get out of Iran. And in the interview, she says, I wish that I could go back. And her son, husband says, that's crazy. So many wish they could leave Iran. Why would you possibly want to go back? And she said, it seems as if in the West, everybody, even in the church, is under some type of satanic lullaby. Mm. That Satan has lulled them into a sleep of complacency. And I wish I could go back where people are so fervent. Mm. Let the letter turn in your hand tonight until it clicks. Let your heart be provoked, stirred, agitated. We were at a local high school the other day. And uh, I'm not a farmer at all. I've grown up in urban areas pretty much my whole life. I had heard about the concept of tilling up soil. We were seeding this little courtyard there, and I'm using this big machine called a tiller. I wouldn't have known what it was called unless somebody told me. And it has these big metal blades, and it begins to rip through rocks and tear up fallow ground and grab like branches and thorns and things that are in the ground and rip them up so the seed has a chance. 
Let the word of the Lord do that in your heart tonight and make you uncomfortable and agitated so that the seed has a chance. Because the world needs this seed to work in your heart. So how do we live again in the tension of the kingdoms now but not yet? How do we learn to steward our hour of history? Well, number one, we must respond with urgency to the kingdom message. That's number one. But number two, and this could seem like a contradiction, we are told to expect delay. Number one, respond with urgency. Number two, expect delay. Matthew 25, 1 through 13. Parable of the ten bridesmaids or the ten virgins. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were still on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others came, Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Let me point out to you again the basic points of reference. We have three major characters here. We have the bridegroom, who is Jesus. We have five foolish virgins and five wise virgins. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. Jesus basically saying he was delayed in their timetable in his coming. But 2 Peter 3, 9 would tell us, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. There's that word repentance again. Five are ready, five are not. The ones who are not ready attempt to borrow oil from those who are. But the oil cannot be transferred. Your church cannot buy oil for you. Your friends cannot buy oil for you. Your mom and dad, your praying grandma cannot buy oil for you. Your small group, no matter how spiritual they are, cannot buy oil for you. Your favorite podcast cannot send you oil in the mail. It is for you to buy and maintain your own oil till the king comes back. Can't depend on anyone else's supply. The thrust of the parable is simple and stated clearly. Watch, wait, and be ready at all times. Give yourself to the oil of intimacy, to knowing God in the secret place. Give yourself to the oil of crushing. That you can live out the words that are on that string. On the mountaintop and in the valley in between. I'll praise you all the same. By oil. So we need to respond to the kingdom message with urgency. Then we're told to expect the length. And third, we need to steward well while we wait. Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. I'm sure you're familiar. 
with these verses, but don't let familiarity lull you into that sleep. You've probably heard this passage outside of the sandwich that it's in. This is in the middle of an end time sandwich, meaning that it's an end time parable. This is the meat of an end time parable. How do I know that? Because the parable right above it is called the parable of the ten virgins, and the parable right behind it is called the final judgment. Okay, we've got some bread, we've got some meat in the middle called the parable of the talents. Sandwiched right in the middle of end time context. The parable of the talents is an end time parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. And notice he says, not the, that the end times can be illustrated, though he's talking about the end times. He says the kingdom of heaven. Remember, we marry these concepts together because the kingdom is now but not yet. We stand in the middle of Jesus announcing that the king is coming, but we're waiting for his full arrival the second time so we can be made just like him. Got to live in that tension. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earn five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. And after a long time, the master returned from his trip and called him to give an account of how they had used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I have earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I have earned two more. The master said, and recognizes the exact same accolades he gives to both. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. At which he should say, and I also gave you money you didn't own. And I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here is your money back. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant, if you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one with ten bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this youth, useless servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Number one, we need to identify who the talents belong to. God. Although they switch hands, they never stop belonging to God. Everything in your life entrusted to your care for the kingdom's sake still belongs to God. And we need to recognize that he has been generous in entrusting his resources to us. If you feel unqualified tonight, a word of encouragement. God has put trust in you to the measure that he has entrusted things to you. 
I remember one time I was in my prayer room, I felt the Lord saying, Skyler, you know, I trust you. And I was like, huh? I don't know if this is just me here myself. You know what I mean? I don't want to be like puffed up with some type of arrogance. And I go, well, how can I know this is you? And he goes, if you want to know how much I trust you, look at what I've entrusted to you. He goes, look at your wife. At the time, I was a middle school pastor. Look at those precious students. I love them so much that I've entrusted to your care. Look at those young adults that are under your care. I trust you that much. In trust, to put trust in. Whatever God has put into your hands, he has trusted you that much. And you will have to give an account for it. We will have to give an account for what God has entrusted to us and not to somebody else. I will not give an account for what he entrusted to my wife, my mother, or any number of my friends in this room. But I must give an account before Almighty God for what I have done with what he has placed in my hand. Don't compare. Don't bury your talents. Be faithful. Be wise. Use it for the kingdom's sake. The band can come back up. I'm getting ready to close. And then we need to know God rightly as a reward. Hebrews 11, 6. For it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists. And that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. That verse is at the beginning of the hall of faith listed in Hebrews. Where it lists people who serve God's purposes in their generation. They weren't perfect, but they gave themselves fully to what God was doing in their hour of history. And some of them received what they hoped for. Some of them didn't. Some of them were beheaded. Some of them died in battle. Some of them did not receive on this side of eternity the promises they had been given. But they were not content to call this world their home. And they have joined in Hebrews 12, the great cloud of witnesses. And they will attest to the fact that whether you get it on this side or you get it on that side, God is faithful as a rewarder. I want you to think about the mountain that Caleb and Joshua are occupying in heaven right now. Come on. I want you to think about where Moses calls home right now. I want you to think about where Gideon makes his home, where he lays his head at night. Who said, I'm the least in my family. My family is the least in all the tribes of Israel. I want you to think about Jeremiah the prophet, who is called the weeping prophet. Put in damp, cold cellars for preaching the word of God. Nobody ever really turned back in his own generation. He never saw the fruit of his preaching in his lifetime. But he would tell you today, God is a rewarder and he is faithful. And eternity will tell your story. Why do I love to visit the meta-narrative of Scripture? Because sometimes we get so good at looking at 15-second stories that disappear within 24 hours. That sometimes we need to get outside of our little miniature stories and find ourselves in the storyline that was written by the Ancient of Days. The one who lives outside of time and space. Who's called to give your called you to lay down your life and give yourself to something much bigger than yourself? And there's gonna be many days where you're gonna feel like you're just beating your head against the wall saying, is this making any difference? Remember on that day, God is a rewarder. And he will reward those who diligently and faithfully seek and steward everything put into their hands. 
Those who will learn how to wait and watch and say, Oh, I know that my reward is coming. He's coming in clouds of glory with countless thousands of angels. But this is the part that breaks my heart. He comes with reward in one hand and a rod of judgment in the other. He's called the righteous judge. There's a song out right now by the upper room called Open the Scroll. Do you know what's in the scroll? Have you read Revelation? Wrath. I sing Open the Scroll because it's God's eternal plans and purpose, but I still know people who are on the other side of the wrath of God because they have not come into that place of justification and it breaks my heart. But even so, like John, will be a generation of forerunners that will say, God, I can't stand to live. I will weep over the fact that none would be found worthy to open the scroll. All of heaven in that moment was weeping, saying, none is found worthy to open the scroll. But then the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundations of the world stepped forth. And they said, he is worthy. Here is found one who is worthy. He's going to right every wrong. He's going to dry every tear. And he's coming back for a perfect, spotless bride without wrinkle or blemish. That's the story that I want to give my life to. 